Hej och välkomna till Dataministeriet med mig Filip Jansén och Anders Bäckström som inte heller idag är närvarande. Istället har jag en mycket intressant gäst. So I will turn over to English and a very warm welcome to Daniel J. Sulov, um, a distinguished professor at the George Washington University Law School, also the founder and president CEO of Teach Privacy, and obviously an author of a long range of books such as like Bridge, Nothing to Hide, and a large number of articles, papers, and not the least, a children's book on privacy as well. So I'm super glad that you can join me here today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with what I mentioned in the end. You actually wrote maybe, yeah, I would say a children's book, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I wrote that uh, several years ago. Uh, and uh, I uh, had been reading children's books to my young son for, for so many years and realized that there really wasn't anything out there about privacy. Uh, so I thought that uh, a book about privacy would be, would be useful. So it's a, a fictional story about why privacy is important. It's called uh, I Monger. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. It's a creature with a lot of ice. Exactly. It's actually built on this, uh, based on this creature from Greek myth uh, that had all these eyes that, that would be used to spy on people. Uh, and this, this character um, comes to town and promises that everyone is going to be safe and secure because he's going to watch them all the time. And they're excited about this idea. They, they think this is great. Uh, so they elect him and uh, he uh, proceeds to spy on them a little too much. Uh, and this starts to cause some problems, uh, but I won't give away the, the end. No, uh, and uh, the reception of the book, how, how has it been? Uh, it's been good. Um, I self-published it. Uh, so I had a tough time finding a publisher. Uh, a lot of publishers didn't quite know what to make of it because it's not clear even that there's a category for it. When I look to categorize it, you, you can't find a, a children's book category that this actually fits into. Um, so I, I, I self-published uh, and uh, you know, so far it got you know, some good reviews. It got a good reception. I recently uh, turned it into a video on okay. YouTube where I narrate the book. And that video is free, anyone can watch it. Uh, I My goal really was just to get get the story out there and, and to put it out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when you self-publish a book, you you make enough money to maybe buy you a, 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 <laughs> a, a dinner at a fast food restaurant. Uh, but that's pretty much all you, you can get. Um, but you know I, the video uh, has done really well. I just launched that actually uh, a week ago, uh, and it's gotten more than two thousand views. So I'm excited about that. That's really um, great. And uh, you know, just excited to get the. It was a fun project to work on. I actually put my son as a character in the book, uh, so it, it was really a, a, a really you know engaging project to be to do so I'm, I'm really glad I, I, I did it 
obviously a very important topic as well to to teach and learn like children at an early age about privacy but the reason i invited you and and one of the many reasons not only the children's book but i i see you as one of in a historical long line of distinguished professors in the u.s and writers I mean, maybe starting with uh, the right to privacy in the Harvard Law Review over the years, several others. But I see you like as the prolonged arm of that branch of privacy within America. Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's been uh, a lot of folks that are, are, are writing in the field now. I got involved in the uh, mid-90s uh, when I was in law school. Uh, I knew I wanted to teach law, and I um, was kind of looking for, you know, an interesting subject area to write about. Uh, I'm very, you know, I have a humanities background, not a technology, but I've always been really interested in technology, and there was a, a class on cyber law. Uh, in the mid-90s was the time where the internet was just starting to become commercialized, I um, uh, thought the class was fascinating. I thought the issues were fascinating. And I thought that the internet was not just a passing fad. So I thought I would do uh, internet law. But I, I thought, okay, internet law is a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different issues. Uh, the issue that seemed uh, to be the most interesting to me and also the one that was least written about was privacy. And so I uh, thought I'd write a couple articles on privacy and then write some other articles on uh, intellectual property and other issues that uh, were, were, were coming up in, in uh, cyber law. So I started researching on privacy and, and uh, there wasn't a ton out there uh, in terms of works to read. Uh, there were um, obviously the, the very famous 1890 Law Review article from Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis. Uh, there was uh, a, a book by Alan Weston, Privacy and Freedom. Uh, there were a few other law review articles. There's a few scholars that were writing in the field, uh, Paul Schwartz, Joel Reidenberg, Anita Allen, Oscar Gandy, but there weren't that many. And so ultimately I was able to read almost everything. And uh, I started on writing an article and I realized that you know there was uh, a lot more uh, out there, a lot more issues to explore that, you know, it was kind of like, you know, going, you know, going kind of, you know, down the rabbit hole and, and finding Wonderland. It really was pretty amazing how, uh, how much uh, w w was there. So I, uh, and also what was nice was that even after my first article, even it was before it was actually officially published, I just posted it online. Uh, people were starting to call me an expert. Uh, and I just started teaching. I had, you know, this one unpublished piece and suddenly I'm an expert. So it was kind of nice. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, being called an expert in this, maybe I should keep writing about it. Uh, so, uh, I, um, wrote some more articles and as I wrote more, I discovered more issues uh, and then the field just started growing and growing and growing and it just got bigger and bigger. And now there are so many people writing in this area. Uh, there's so many, there's so much scholarship, mo many, many books per year, uh, you know, countless articles. It, it's hard to even keep up with what happens in a month, let alone 
uh, read everything. Uh, but there was that weird moments in the early days when I started where I would ha I, I had read everything. I was fully caught up. Uh, and then if like something came out, like a newspaper article or, or, or someone had written a law review article on it, I would you know pounce on it. Uh, it was like, wow, now uh, there's just so many that, you know, e even per day that I can't even read a day's worth of what mm -hmm. is being written and what's going on. So it's really exciting. Uh, it's exciting to see so much attention to these issues and to have been there in, you know, early on to kind of see how this all, uh, all progressed. So one of the things I really enjoy about your writing and also why I compared it to the article you mentioned about uh, from Warren and Brande is that you write on complex topic, but in an understandable fashion and not all articles or papers are written in that way that you, you actually understand even the deep thinking. So that is some great stuff. And and to mention a few of my favorite articles, obviously a taxonomy of privacy from 2006 is really an eye opener to me, to be honest. And late, more lately, you wrote uh, this year, I think, about the limitations of privacy rights, a very interesting article, especially in the light of GDPR. And lately, you published together with Hideyoki Matsumi, the Prediction Society, Algorithms and the Problems of Forecasting the Future. Also super interesting. Like, we can discuss all of these topics, obviously. But I would like to start out with this uh, a little bit older article, A Taxonomy of Privacy, because I think that's important for us to actually understand what are we discussing when we discuss privacy? Yeah, um, that's actually... Um... Uh, the culmination of some really early work. Um, so when I started uh, researching and writing on privacy, uh, you know, the first question that that came to mind, uh, because, you know, my humanities background, I took a lot of uh, philosophy and spent a lot of time with philosophy was, well, you know, we, we should first understand, you know, what we're talking about, you know, what, what exactly is privacy? How do we conceptualize privacy really matters? And uh, so I uh, looked at uh, a number of the attempts to define privacy, and I found them all wanting. I found them all to be um, really suffer from one of two problems. They were either too broad, uh, like Warren and Brandeis's definition, the right to be let alone, but, but that would apply to almost anything. You know, if, if I bump somebody on the subway by accident, you know, I've violated their right to be let alone, but I haven't violated their privacy. Uh, and then um, uh, there are other definitions that are far too narrow uh, that would define privacy as only intimate information or only secret information. But we have a lot of instances where, you know, someone might not be keeping secrets, but that it might just be obscure, uh, protected by practical obscurity, or, you know, th there could be you know, a surveillance camera in public uh, I think it still violate privacy, even though it, it's, it, there aren't secrets involved. Um, you know, intimacy is too narrow because you know your financial information. You wouldn't say that's intimate, but you know a lot of people would say it's private. Uh, so ultimately, I, I struggled with the definitions, and so I wrote an early piece 
uh, saying that all these definitions were flawed and that the best approach was to uh, think about this uh, using philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, who uh, proposed a different way of conceptualizing privacy, that, that a lot of attempts to conceptualize uh, were um, for looking for the common denominator for things and uh, looking for what's common in everything. But the problem is that with privacy, uh, there really isn't one thing in common. Uh, now, he didn't tackle the issue of privacy. I applied him to privacy, but, but he, he actually was focused on games. Um, but um, he proposed a different way of conceptualizing in that he said that some things don't have a common denominator. They're related with family resemblances. Uh, you might have your mother's eyes, your brother's nose, your father's, uh, you know, hair color, uh, you, you might share the same feature with different family members, but it's not all the same feature for everyone. Uh, and, but you still are connected, you're connected in a web. Uh, and that's sort of what uh, helped me, uh, you know, figure out a different way to understand privacy, that privacy, uh, the things that we consider to be you know, involve privacy, don't have a common denominator, but they're related to each other. Uh, that was an early piece that 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 I wrote. Uh, and then later, the piece that you're talking about, the taxonomy of privacy builds on that. Um, and then that piece cashes out the next question, which is, you know, okay, if privacy is this web of different but related things, well, what are those things? Uh, so I wanted to map out uh, what those things are and, and work out a way to uh, you know, understand them. Um, why are they related? How are they somewhat different? You know, and, and, and what's, you know, how should we think about them? Uh, and so ultimately, I, I, I think that the best way uh, for privacy uh, is that privacy is, is essentially a desire for a, a kind of intervention or protection of uh, or against certain types of problems uh, that, that, that certain activities cause problems uh, that are related uh, and that we ultimately in some cases are going to want you know an intervention from the law or, or some kind of protection uh, to address those problems and uh, so I, I wanted to kind of lay out uh, you know, what that, what those types of problems are. And, and ultimately I, I came up with about uh, 16 different types of things uh, in different groupings. So, you know, some involve information collection. How does the information of collection, how can that create certain problems that we need to address? Information processing, you know, how, how does that uh, create certain problems. Information disclosure, when it's disclosed to others. Uh, and then the last broad category is invasion, you know, when it's not necessarily uh, an information disclosure or a processing issue, but someone is snooping into one's life or intruding on one's uh, tranquility or impeding one's decisions. So ultimately, I, I, I tried to sketch out what this look like uh, from a very bottom-up approach, uh, looking at you know you know my understanding of cases and of 
of uh, things written about privacy and literature and and real examples and laws uh, to, to see where the common points were and, and, and where these problems were emerging and then, you know, describe them. So, so what did you find? What was the common denominator? Well, there isn't. Uh, there isn't. The There's no common denominator. That's that's the the point of the uh, Wittgensteinian conception is, you know, there is nothing they have actually. You know, there's no one common thing, uh, but they're all related. Uh, and ultimately, the term privacy. Um, you, I don't. You, know, I'm not an essentialist. I don't think that there are you know concepts like platonic concepts out there that just kind of exist in some kind of, you know, mystical realm. From the uh, nature. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm much more of a pragmatist than a naturalist. I, I don't think, you know, your concepts are, are basically, you know, mental constructs that we make uh, as tools. They're, they're useful. Uh, and privacy is a word. It's a kind of umbrella term. You know, we use it. Uh, to when we are kind of referring to a constellation of different things, but related things. Uh, and it's useful when we, you know, to a point. Uh, it becomes not useful when, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of like not useful. So an example would be with any term. Here's an example. You know, the, the term animal, it can be useful if I, you know, ask you a question like how many animals are in the zoo? You know that's that's that that that's helpful, right? You know, we 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 can we can we, we can you can understand the question and you can answer that question, uh, and we can say, okay, you know that that it's, the use of the term is is good for that purpose. Uh, now, if I say, you know, bring me the animal, you know, and, and you're sitting in the zoo, you, the, it's totally unhelpful, right? The the, the term is way too broad. Uh, it, it doesn't actually, you know lead you to any meaningful action. Now, in certain cases, if I ask, you know, how many animals are in the zoo, you, you know, the, the, the term is fine for that use, but it's not fine for other uses. The same with privacy. You know, it, it's fine as a, a broad umbrella term to say, hey, I'm going to just, when I'm talking broadly about uh, the, the, these group of things, it's just not helpful uh, if I'm trying to actually decide when should there be a legal intervention? When should the law step in to say, hey, there's a problem and you know, we need to do something to address that problem? Uh, if you just say privacy, uh, you know, you're, you're not, it, it's not gonna be specific enough to be useful. Uh, so that's why we want, that's what the taxonomy is for. It helps us drill down to say, okay, you know, here, here are some, uh, areas where a, a, a legal intervention may be necessary, because uh, ultimately the taxonomy isn't going to say always, because that depends on a balancing. We we we'd look at okay, um, if there's a problem, you know, what's the problem? What's the you know potential harm that the problems could cause, and then what are the potential benefits of the activity, uh, and how do we weigh that? Surveillance is an example. Surveillance is a um, is a uh, one of the pro the problems that are created that that's created by information collection. So you know you're gathering information through surveillance, and it, it can cause problems. One problem is that it can uh, you know give too much power to the watchers, 
and lead to abuse. So there's problems of power and potential abuse. And there's also chilling effects that being watched uh, inhibits people from feeling free, from expressing themselves to their fullest, into consuming uh, you know, ideas that they might not want others to know about. Um, so those are the main problems. And uh, what we should look at is, you know, when should there be uh, a protection against that? Now, there are good uses of surveillance. There are times where we might want to have surveillance. It's not absolute. Uh, it's not always like just ban any surveillance. Uh, it can be valuable, but we have to guard against those problems. And, and that should be our guide. So in the US, uh, unfortunately, the law uh, it's very uh, rigid and and stuck on a public-private distinction. And so in the U.S., the, the distinction goes that, you know, surveillance in private, there's a lot of protection, but surveillance in public, well, you're in public, therefore it's not private and therefore uh, no, no protections. My analysis suggests, no, actually the problems that surveillance causes, uh, you know, abuse, uh, excessive power, and chilling effects, those can occur in public just as they can occur in private. So the public-private distinction just does not matter. You know, what really matters is addressing these problems. And we want the law to step in when these problems exist. Uh, if there are benefits to surveillance, then the law needs to balance the costs against the uh, against the benefits and try to minimize the costs and and uh, you know to see, and see if the benefits are really worth it. Uh, and ultimately come to the appropriate set of controls on, on this that could you know, allow for you know, a reasonable uh, amount of surveillance that ultimately addresses these, these problems. Uh, and that's how the law should approach it. The problem is that you know, the law often doesn't approach it like that. The concept of privacy becomes a, uh, a gatekeeper that you know, courts will say, oh, this is not private, therefore no protection. Uh, it's not private, it's outside the scope of what we want to regulate. And, and that's the problem. It, it's sort of, uh, you know, creating their own conception of privacy that's overly narrow, uh, that's based on nothing. It's based on air, because just, you know, again, I, I don't think they're you know, platonic, you know, concepts in the sky. Uh, and I certainly don't think that policymakers or courts have any, you know, special, uh, you know, special knowledge. I mean, I wouldn't trust a category even if Plato came up with it, uh, let alone, you know, some judge or, or some policymaker comes up with a concept, you know, sorry, but, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're not even Plato. Uh, so I kind of think, no, I mean, you, why not start? If there's a problem, we should address it. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, and, and so you, with the, the privacy often gets in the way, the, the, this idea of trying to uh, come up with a concept of it gets in the way of just trying to address a problem. Uh, so I think the best approach is, you know, let's look at the problems, let's understand the problems, and let's address the problems. And we can do all that without having to come up with some master conception of privacy or some common denominator. Uh, and, you know, that way, if, if we focus on the problems and we focus on what the best, you know, legal responses to those problems are, we're going to come up with so much more headway 
uh, and such a better understanding and uh, way of addressing this than if we try to do it from the top down with some, you know, conception of privacy in the sky. So that that's the general gist of, of it. And the taxonomy is to help guide us. It's to help uh, look at, you know, and, and, and understand where these problems are uh, and how to think about them. So that I, I have, I mean, obviously I have million follow-up questions, but one I'm thinking of is since there, according to you, there's no like um, natural right to privacy or at least not the concept. And uh, will it change over time? Yeah, um, I think absolutely. I mean, privacy is uh, it, 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 it's culturally and historically contingent. Um, you know, what people think of as private has changed throughout time. Uh, and even what they mean by what it means to be private changes, and it varies from culture to culture. So it, it, you know, I wrote a book uh, called Understanding Privacy, where I incorporated uh, the taxonomy and some of the other work I, I did on this. And, and, and I talked about some examples from history about how certain things were understood. An example is the home. It, it's sort of today we, we think, it, think of it as the quintessential private place, uh, but it wasn't always like that. Uh, and it's not always like that in all cultures either. You know, the home, you know, even, even when the home was called private, uh, the meaning there was just private vis-a-vis -vis the government, but it wasn't really a place where someone would go and find tranquility uh, you know, among, uh, you know, the, you know, among the kind of non, uh, you know, non aristocrats, uh, you know, the, the non wealthy, which was most of the people throughout most of history, you know, their, their houses were like one small little room. Uh, they didn't even have different rooms. There was no place to retreat and everything people would do in the home would be in front of everybody else. And, you know, things that we would say, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, really, you know, we just, it's so foreign to us to think that you would do everything, in, you know, in, in your house in just one room, one open room. Now, among the um, wealthy, you know, they had a, uh, they had rooms, they had the luxury of more space, uh, but, you know, they had servants who were everywhere and, you know, they would take a bath, there'd be a servant there. Um, and so even, even in these moments that people would consider like their most private moments, they weren't necessarily, you know, private in the same way we think today, uh, their, their privacy was protected by confidentiality, but, but it wasn't, you know, just a place where they would be, you know, totally alone. Uh, there weren't places of refuge in the house. A lot of the house, there'd be other people in, in the house all the time. Uh, now over time, this, this changed. Uh, and, you know, our understandings of the home and, and what we expect the home to be uh, the very architecture of the home is different. Uh, and so all that affects the attitudes of privacy in the home. And that's just one example. I mean, there's, you know, multiple examples. And then too, technology changes things, you know, as, as technology changes, you know, the way that uh, data is collected about people and the way data is used about people, this opens up new problems that, you know, we will need to think about, you know, what, what are the what are some of these these uh, you know, problems related to the ways that new technology works? So it's a constant um, ground up 
thinking and rethinking to really focus on, you know, this, this question, which is, you know, where are their problems and are they related to these other problems? Because ultimately there's no, you know, kind of magic, you know, formula to, you know, say that something's privacy versus not. I think ultimately what, what the test is, is, you know, is it useful to understand the similarities and to treat these things, you know, somewhat similar, and we should treat them as similar to the extent to which they are and to which it's helpful to treat them as similar. When it starts becoming unproductive and unhelpful, then maybe we treat them as different. And it's that, that kind of approach, because I just don't think there's kind of any kind of objective, you know, definition out there. Uh, so, you know, we just look at things and we compare them and, and where their similarities can say, oh, this is actually similar to this problem. So maybe the way we uh, address that problem should be similar to the way we address this other problem. And then if we, well, actually, maybe there are reasons why, you know, we should address it differently, then um, we should address it differently. Uh, but ultimately, we want to look at the ground up and really look and study, you know, how best to to do this uh, and what i think we're seeing now right is, is a lot of issues with artificial intelligence and they create some problems that are privacy problems other problems that are a little different and then we have to think about okay where they where they overlap with privacy where they have similarities to some of the other privacy problems and we can say hey do, do the the tools that we're using for those problems work for AI, and I think sometimes the answer is yes, but partially, because there's other aspects that are a little different, uh, and then we might need a little uh, different response because you know the problem goes beyond the things that are similar in, in some of the other problems, and that's how we constantly have to analyze things. So, with this concept, would you say that where you would probably answer no, but I feel that we're on a slippery slope, like because at first we had like one camera and then we had speed cameras and then we had uh, these uh, uh, stations when you go into the city with cameras to pay like uh, tax and uh, after a couple of years like yeah but we can use this for traffic measuring and then like ah by the way we can also use it to for crime prevention and uh, let's put up a few more cameras and more cameras and so I'm thinking of if we get used to surveillance, will we like tolerate more and more and more from a privacy perspective? Well, there's always that risk of, you know, how much will we accept and how much will we tolerate? How much will we allow ourselves to build it into our lives? Um, in the United States, a big uh, test for the applicability of privacy protection uh, is what's known as the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Uh, and this is the test that is used to apply the Fourth Amendment, which is the major, the main protection against uh, law enforcement surveillance and law enforcement investigations. And so you ask, is does this surveillance, does this this activity of the police, does this information gathering violate a person's reasonable expectation of privacy? I actually think this is the wrong test uh, because it focuses on on expectation. And, uh, you know, the problem is that as more technology becomes prevalent, 
uh, as these technologies are, are used more, people start to expect less and less privacy. They start to expect that they will be watched and that all this information about them will be gathered. Uh, and then if we're going to say, well, that means that there's no protection, well, I, I think that's a big problem. The reason why we want the law to intervene is not because we expect privacy. It's because, in fact, we are concerned that our privacy is not going to be protected, that it, that it is slipping away, that, that, it, that in a way that we don't expect privacy and we want the law to intervene so that we can have privacy. So the test really should focus on desire of privacy, not on whether we actually expect it. Uh, and so that that's the role. That's why we want the legal intervention. Uh, it's when technology starts to dwindle our expectations, yeah, you know, and we say, well, no, there's a reason why we want to preserve privacy. Well, we want to push back against technology uh, because it's important, and there are important values to doing that. And that's why the law should step in. Uh, and intervene. Uh, and so that's ultimately where I, I would use as the trigger point for the law, intervene whenever there is a problem that we want to address. Obviously, I want to touch upon GDPR as well in light of this, uh, because in the GDPR, we have rights of the data subjects or individuals. And as far as I understand, well, like also being from a philosophical background, human rights is a concept that these rights is inherit to you as a human being so that they come from nature. It's like you can't take them away and it's a fact. How would you answer someone say that? Yeah, there are actually predetermined rights. Well, I don't necessarily, I, I subscribe to a different philosophy. So I, I don't, I don't believe in, you know, natural rights. I don't believe that anything is kind of, you know, inherent. Um, I do think there are fundamental rights in a different way. So I think that, you know, we protect certain rights that should be inalienable, uh, not, you know, based on kind of any, you know, anything in the natural order, but because, these rights are essential to freedom and democracy and to, you know, the good. And so it starts from, you know, the relationship of the rights to, you know, the ultimate aims that we're trying to achieve in society and the kind of society we want to live in. And, and that would be very close to fundamental because I would say, you know, if, if we are committed to living in a democratic and free society, then we do, you know, need protections of privacy. Now, I, I do think that, you know, privacy rights are unfortunately over relied upon. And this is the subject of an article you mentioned called The Limitations of Privacy Rights. Uh, and ultimately, in the article, I'm not saying that the rights should be abolished. I think the rights are, are you know, good to have. But I think that the laws, including the GDPR, over relies on them. They put way too much weight on these rights to do the work of protecting privacy. And I ultimately think the rights are more of a supporting actor uh, and they can only do a little bit to protect privacy, but they can't be the main pillar that you build a privacy law on. Uh, and, and they ask to do way too much work uh, and, and they're going to fail because they really can't do that much work because the rights ultimately and privacy rights ultimately put a lot of burdens on the individual. They put you know the onus on the individual 
to access their records, correct their records, delete unnecessary data from their records, object to certain things. Uh, the problem with this is that it does not scale. There are just too many companies out there. Uh, so I'm supposed to access my information from a thousand plus companies, including a lot that I don't even know exist. Uh, then I get all the data that they have about me. Um, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? Figure out like, okay, how are they going to use it and what they're going to do with it and, 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 and become an expert in exactly all the different uses and combinations of uses that they're going to do. Uh, and I have to correct it all. So if there are errors, I have to be a free proofreader for them. And, and how am I supposed to keep track of when the data is no longer necessary for the purpose for which they gathered it and then make a request to delete it? Like I'm supposed to keep up with all this and, and, and uh, it's a full-time job, it does not scale. And the other problem is the consumer really doesn't fully understand and I don't think ever can fully understand uh, the full ramifications of uh, sharing their data for privacy. I, I just don't think it's possible. Uh, you know, so I'm an expert and I can't figure this out uh, to really figure out like, okay, how is data going to be used about me? I, I kind of want to know, okay, what, what are the different potential uses? And then you know, a lot of the uses involve algorithms that are going to be used to, uh, you know, make decisions about me or assist uh, in the making of decisions about me by people, but they're going to use algorithms to help them. But to, to understand it, I need to understand the algorithm. So I, 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 and that's complicated, especially with machine learning algorithms that evolve and change. But to really understand the algorithms, the, you know, I need to understand the data that they're trained on and the other data that's being used to compare me against others. But I can't have that data because, you know, it violates the privacy of other people. But I need those data sets. But those data sets are changing every minute. Uh, and then I need to understand the data sets and how they're going to work with the algorithm. So please, uh, the companies need to lend me their computer scientists so I can talk to them about this. And to really understand privacy, you know, the, the privacy notice is not enough. I, I kind of need to understand how it works. Say if the company says we provide reasonable security, well, what does that mean? I, I want to know, you know, how do you encrypt your data and, and what are your protections? And well, a good part of security is training. You know, if, if, if you don't train employees about, you know, what, what to do or not to do, well, they're going to, you're going to be more vulnerable. So I want to know how good is your training? Just saying you do training isn't enough. I want to see the quality of it because uh, I'm in the training business and there's a big difference in quality, how effective training is. Uh, so I, I need to see it. Uh, I also would like to talk to the privacy officer. I want to understand their privacy, uh, you know, the various parts of their privacy program. How good is their risk assessment? How good are their, their, their DPIAs? I'd also like to know their vendor agreements. How good are those? How, how, what, what kind of due diligence do they do when they select, you know, all the multitudes of other companies that are gathering the data, you know, uh, and, uh, and I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, there's so many more questions. So I'm going to need like weeks, if not months to study all the different implications of what they're doing with my data and how good their protections are uh, to then make a decision about, you know, are they, you know, is this safe? Should I trust them? Because uh, ultimately for the consumer, they're asking, the law is kind of asking the consumer to make a cost benefit analysis, you know, is are the benefits of, you know, sharing your data worth the costs and the risks? 
Well, how do I make that determination? Uh, and so the law kind of puts all the onus on individuals. And I just don't think individuals, uh, even experts, are really up to the task. They don't have time for this task. Um, it, it's a burden. Uh, and so the rights, like, uh, you know, so what happens is, you know, all these rights are given. The lawmaker, the policymaker say, see, we gave individuals control of their personal data. Well, no, you didn't. You just created a mirage. You created the mirage of control, the illusion that, that there's control. And then when people don't exercise it, you know, there's no protection. And, uh, you know, then people are blamed, like, see, if they really cared about privacy, they'd be you know, spending, you know, every waking moment, you know, <laughs> making all sorts of requests to delete and do all this stuff. That's just busy work at, at the end of the day. And and you know, ultimately, I think what, what we need, and the GDPR does do some of the, the, the have, have duties too, but just not enough. It's still too much on the rights. We really need is, is uh, you know, someone to think about what the right protection should be. So I liken it to, you know, go to the supermarket, I buy a carton of milk and I don't have to go and research the farms. I don't need to go and get like, you know, do a, you know, a, a, uh, uh, you know, a, a data subject access request to, to find out all information about my milk. Uh, I don't have to, you know, look into the, the safety of, you know, the manufacturer uh, and understand the manufacturing process and do whatever. I can just buy the milk and I know that someone has been sure it's safe, that it's safe. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to know about it. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to exercise rights and, you know, send all these emails and make all these calls and do all this research. I just can buy my milk. You know, that's what we should do for privacy. And, and, and so I think that the rights just turn out, you know, they're well-meaning, but ultimately I don't think this is something that the individual, you know, can control. What we really want is that we want the privacy and data use to be under control, but that doesn't mean that the individual should be the one controlling it. Uh, there are certain times where I think it's great where, you know, if, if there's a particular company and they have data about me, I should have a right to delete it if they don't need it. And I certainly think that's great. In certain cases where I'm aware of they're having data, I, I open up a social media account and I decide I don't want to be on the social media. I should have a right to shut that down and have them get rid of my data. Absolutely. But in most cases, uh, that, that that's more of a an outlier case. In most cases, you know, I shouldn't have to worry about that. I shouldn't have to do that. The data is no longer relevant. They should get rid of it, uh, whether I ask or not. So basically what you're saying is that, yes, we should have the rice similar to milk on the milk. Uh, it obviously says like, if you want to have questions, you can contact this and this, but you don't do it. And, and you're thinking of something similar for uh, data protection and data privacy. Like, yeah, you will have the rights. So you could contact, but have you seen any legislation in that the direction you you want well there are parts of the gdpr that are like that so the gdpr puts a lot on rights but then it does have other position uh, parts that are risk-based uh and that do require certain things uh, i think those could be a lot stronger uh so i think you know uh, you know there are requirements to have you know dpias and have privacy officers and 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 other types of protections but sometimes a lot of those um, 
are, are not uh, as strong as they should be. Uh, you know, DPIAs are, are often, they're not required for everything. I think they should be. Um, uh, you know, there should be, you know, some kind of way to, uh, you know, meaningfully review or, or have accountability for the DPIA. You know, how good is it? Because it's only as good as your conception of privacy, right? If you're analyzing the, what are the privacy risks of doing something? Well, the DPIA is going to be all about, you know, well, what are the privacy harms? And I would say, you know, use my taxonomy and, and go through that. Uh, but a lot of times what, what passes for a DPIA is just someone's more narrow conception of privacy say, oh, it's fine. You know, we just provide some access controls and, you know, we encrypt the data and, you know, we keep it secure and they'll conflate security and privacy and call that somehow privacy. Or, or they'll do certain things, but it's not clear that those are are, are really where the problem is. And there's a lot of provisions of the GDPR that are kind of like this. So, you know, the protections of uh, against automated processing uh, apply, you know, when it's solely automated processing. Uh, so if you stick a human in and, and a human's, you know, interacting with uh, the, uh, you know, using an algorithm, uh, but the human has a role in the decision-making process, then those provisions, you know, cease, they go away. Uh, they don't apply. Uh, I think, well, you know, it's still problematic, uh, even if a human is involved. Uh, but ultimately, the, the GDPR thinks that automation is the problem. And certainly automation is a part of the problem. But automation is not inherently the, the problem. You know, the problem is, you know, you know uses of data uh, in certain ways uh, that can create problems or harms whether they're automated or not. Uh, and this gets into my work on prediction, uh, where, you know, increasingly um, predictions are being made about people, predictions about their future behavior or their future likelihood to do certain things or not do certain things. Yeah, and these are going to be used to, to make judgments about them. And these can create a lot of problems. Sometimes they involve automation because an algorithm is used, but in, in a number of circumstances, a person is in the loop. There is a person involved that will then take this uh, information and use it. Whether a person uses it or a person doesn't use it, whether it's whole, solely automated or partially automated, I think the problems transcend that. Uh, and so follow the problems. Uh, but the GDPR kind of gets very, has some rigidity points that uh, curtail its protections in ways that are unfortunate. So, so obviously you mentioned harm and in a number of papers, uh, articles, also books, you have written quite extensive on harm. So can you give a few examples of how harm in, in the area of privacy, obviously? Yeah, well, there's a multitude of different kinds of harm that can be created from, you know, reputational harm to emotional harm to um, sometimes physical harm. You know, you disclose the uh, location information or address of someone who is at risk for stalking or, you know, at risk for, you know, a death threat and they are now in a much more precarious state. It could be life or death. Um, so there's physical, um, emotional, reputational. There's also autonomy harms, you know, that certain, uh, certain activities interfere with people's autonomy um, and could 
uh, you know, impede their ability to make decisions about their lives. Also, you know, predictions create uh, a set of problems that are very problematic. You know, in, in the prediction paper, I looked at some of the unique problems that predictions create. And, and one of the problems they create is that you know, predictions are, are, are neither true nor false until they, uh, until they happen. You know, so if I say you know, you're going to engage in a terrorist act in the future, and you say that's wrong, I said, well, I didn't say you did do a terrorist attack. I said you're going to. There's a probability that you're going to do it. So you can't tell me that's false yet. Wait till you die, and then if you didn't do a terrorist attack, now you can uh, tell me. Uh, we, we can know for sure. But until that point, at any point in time, you could do a terrorist attack, according to my prediction. Uh, and then the problem is, you know, how do you, how do you get redress against that? How, you know, what, what do you do? Because that, you know, living under that prediction could mean you're living under a cloud. You're, you've been accused of something that you essentially haven't done, uh, but may do, and you may lose out on opportunities uh, based on that. And how do you challenge that? Well, you know, GDPR and other privacy laws will have provisions where you can challenge the accuracy of records. I, I can say this record's wrong, but again, you know, uh, the record holder will say, oh, it's just a prediction. It's not wrong. It's just a probability and the probability's correct. Uh, it just hasn't happened yet, but doesn't mean it's wrong. So how do you uh, combat that? How do you fight this? Uh, and there's really very little recourse uh, for, for, for people in these situations. And this is why the law needs to look at this problem, intervene, and say in certain cases, you know, we need to you know, address this with uh, with the appropriate set of protections uh, because you know the kind of existing ways to to slot it into the law don't quite work. Uh, and obviously, we have an AI act coming that uh, the parliament in, in the EU parliament just like decided on their own version of obviously. So we will go into this legislative uh, process with triage and so on and contrary a little bit contrary at least to the gdpr it's much more focused on the company organization using ai and not the individual person exactly and i, and I, I actually like that i i think that's the right approach uh, i'm glad that you know they're taking that approach uh, rather than putting all the weight on individual rights uh, I think it, it's the right approach to look at risk. There are obviously, you know, a lot of, you know, specifics, you know, what does the law look like and what will it look like in its final form? Um, and then ultimately, you know, how you know, effective will it be? You know, I think there's a lot of promise there. So I, I, I look at that and I say, you know, I, I think they're in the right direction. Now, whether they actually, you know, bring it home uh, and, and get the goal is a different story. You know, that we, we, we still have to wait and see a lot of things. You know, what does the law look like? How is it going to work in practice? How is it going to be enforced? Uh, because that that's the, you know, another really big question is, you know, how do you enforce the law? You can have a good law on paper, but if it's poorly enforced, it, 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 it could totally fail, uh, which is another, you know, piece I'm, I'm working on, which is about enforcement, because, you know, for a lot of laws, you know, the enforcement, you know, is, is 
really key. You know, you know something, a law is not self-executing. Uh, a, a law is only as good as how it, it's enforced and, and that's what really matters. And, and a lot of the shape uh, and effectiveness of a law depends on, you know, the way it's enforced. So that's a key piece that we won't know until, you know, we see the law in action. So do you think uh, there's do been too little enforcement so far, enforcement of the GDPR, I meant? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to see more. I, I mean, I think there's a few problems. I mean, there's always going to be in every, no matter what law we're talking about, uh, there's always a, um, a not enough enforcement. You know, the fact is that there's always underfunded, under-resourced enforcement agencies everywhere, including in the United States, that they're, they're, they're struggling. And so the enforcers have to uh, you figure out strategies for how to how to do this. I think the GDPR makes it a little trickier because I don't think there's a way to settle cases under the GDPR. They have to enforce it, whereas the FTC in the United States can just settle a case. So they don't actually have to kind of carry out the full enforcement. They can just bring a complaint, negotiate with the company uh, and, and resolve it. And they also have a lot more choice over what cases they enforce. One of the problems with GDPR is like, you know, they, 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 they have to chase down every complaint, every little thing, whether it be major or minor, uh, and then they have to carry it all out to the end. Well, that's going to take a lot of time. It's not the most efficient way to enforce. And so one thing that, and, yet, and to really be efficient, you have to make compromises. And I think the GDPR doesn't want to make those compromises. But I think you kind of, ironically, it'd be more effective if you did make some compromises, because uh, think you could you could move through the enforcement faster. Um, I also think that it's it's a bit of a problem with the the one stop shop approach, and and you know you have you know basically one uh, regulator in Ireland uh, enforcing a ridiculous amount of cases. And so you're, it's a tremendous burden, right? To have the, you know, the one office handle all this stuff. Uh, and now everyone's, well, it's not fast enough. It's not enough. It's whatever, but you know, you, 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 it's, it's unevenly distributed. Uh, and, and the system, you know, leads to, you know, uneven distribution. And if the enforcement's going to be by each individual country, you know, and we know that countries in the EU are not all, you know, they don't all think alike. Uh, they don't all have the same philosophy on privacy. They have different ways of balancing it. Well, you're going to have, you know, different approaches and, and, and that's, that's, you know, and people are, there's a lot of anger about that, I think in the EU and frustration with that. But that's just the reality. Of course, there's going to be differences, and I think that you know, if if, if you don't want those differences to be you know, reflected in enforcement, then the enforcement should be by you know a a, a body constituted by you know uh, a, a group of enforcers that is separate from the individual countries with different representatives from different countries. But but that's not just relying on one uh, country to enforce the vast majority of cases. And then you're going to allow the companies to basically choose their choose their 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 judge and their prosecutor, which is a weird. So I think that's a flaw in, in in the structure, and I think it's not working the way that they want it to. But you know, I, I think that's you know that's based on the the way that the GDPR was architected, and I think that's that's a, a you know 
difficulty. And I also think, so I think like there's a lot of things that are making the enforcement difficult. I would like to see a lot more cases resolved. They should just be resolved. Um, uh, you know, the work should be spread out, uh, you know, so it's not so haphazard about, you know, what, which enforcer does what. And um, yeah, so I, I think that, but I, I mean, I'm glad that they are enforcing. So we do see enforcements, you know, the, you know, it, it's happening. I also think that, you know, fines while they make good headlines are actually not the most, you know, effective enforcement mechanism. I'm not saying we shouldn't have fines, but the fines are never going to be enough. Uh, and if the goal is that the fines are going to be like truly, you know, dissuasive, um, that's going to be rare. I think the fines are good just because, you know, it gets the attention of the uh, upper management of companies. Uh, but ironically, at some of the other potential sanctions that could, uh, wh where the real power is, like ordering, stopping a processing or steps, uh, auditing and other things that can slow down the processing of information and slow companies down in what they're doing. These types of things are, I think, the most feared uh, by, by companies. Uh, a lot of companies will just say, well, well, we'll just pay the fine. You know, whatever it is, we'll pay it. And it's a speeding ticket and we'll just move on. But other types of sanctions that force them not to move on, where they actually have to do stuff, um, those are the ones that I think actually are like the most effective in the long run. I, I think you're completely right. So it's such an interesting discussion. I have one final uh, wrapping up question going back to your home country, actually. And also, like you mentioned, the EU countries member says are very different. And you're obviously completely right. Um, you're, you are living in a federation with uh, over 50 different states. Um, so uh, I was speaking about predictions. What is your prediction about the future? Will we see more legislations on your side of the Atlantic uh, similar to GDPR or more in the direction you would like them to be? Well, I think things are going more in the direction of the GDPR, which is good and bad. Uh, so I think that I love the GDPR. I think it's a big step forward in, in privacy law. I mean, it really, the GDPR is the directive, but it, it, they took the directive, uh, they added a little to it, but they, they, yeah, by, by moving it into a regulation, it suddenly, you know, woke up the world, uh, especially, you know, companies in the United States to really pay attention and, you know, heightening the sanctions and, and all that really did, uh, have, have an effect of, you know, getting companies to start complying, uh, because, they weren't really complying under the directive that much. Uh, you have someone, oh my gosh, we got to get ready for the GDPR. We got to start doing data mapping and everything else. And I think, well, what were you doing for the past, you know, 20 years under the directive? Um, it required all these things too. But so the GDPR was very effective and has some good things that I think are missing from US law. Uh, but I've been working on this, this latest project, which eventually will be a book, but right now it's a series of articles. I've been going through privacy laws, looking at different dimensions of them, both from the US side and the, uh, and the GDPR side, as well as the rest of the world. But most of the rest of the world is, is creating a model that's really based on the GDPR. So uh, looking at the um, uh, different approaches uh, to consent, 
to sensitive data, to privacy rights. And unfortunately, a lot of the most popular things don't work. So we're in the early days of privacy law. I think that GDPR is an advance. You know, I think that the you know, directive was an advance. The GDPR is an advance. Um, I think that there's advance in the United States where states are starting to pass privacy laws. There's about 10 of them now, and there'll be more. But uh, I think a lot of these laws are really flawed. Uh, and I think ultimately, you know, the GDPR has a bunch of issues it needs to work out. You know, the privacy right, too much reliance on privacy rights. I don't think sensitive data works. I think it's well-meaning. Um, but I think, unfortunately, it doesn't work, which is the subject of, of a paper of mine. Ironically, it's starting to become very popular. It's, it's in privacy laws all around the world and finally came to the U.S. in 2020. Now, now all the state privacy laws in the United States have sensitive data. I think um, you need to uh, elaborate a little bit the last minutes on why it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because um, uh, we live in an age of big data. And uh, the EU has said, you know, the, 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 the CJEU, which is the European Court of Justice, has said that you know, inferences about sensitive data, data that can give rise to an inference about sensitive data, sensitive data. And that makes sense. It's totally sensical. But uh, today, uh, nearly any piece of data in combination with other pieces of data can give rise to inferences about a sensitive data category. And that's what you know, modern data analytics is showing us that you can make all sorts of inferences based on non-sensitive data to sensitive data. And so essentially all data is sensitive data. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't need, I don't need to know your race to figure out your race. I, I can do it by, you know, looking at your location plus uh, a bunch of other things about your, you know, information about what products you consume, what things you do, uh, and, you know, data analytics can create a model uh, that, that could then figure out what your race is going to be with a high degree of, of, of likelihood. What does it mean to say data about health? Well, so much data can give rise to inferences about my health, you know, what I eat, how many steps I take per day, um, you know, where I live, you know, the, the environment, the air I breathe, all sorts of things can give uh, inferences to health. And there's all sorts of things that correlate to uh, make inferences about health that, that might have nothing to do with health, you know, religion and philosophical beliefs. Well, what is a philosophical belief? Uh, well, there's all sorts of different uh, philosophies out there. Uh, so it's philosophical belief that, you know, I, I believe in science and therefore, you know, that all the books I read on science go into my philosophy. Well, pretty much everything I read forms my philosophy. What's my philosophy? Is it my worldview? Well, my worldview is everything about me. So how do I say what's philosophy and what's not philosophy? And I could go on. But the problem is the categories are a little naive to, uh, you know, just modern data analytics, that everything is potentially sensitive. And then the categories really are arbitrary. You know, why these categories and not other categories? There's no overarching theory as to why certain things get inclu included or excluded. Someone said, well, it, it, it's we want to pr pr protect against discrimination. Well, then why don't we have, you know, class as being there? There's a lot of discrimination against class based on wealth, uh, based on education. Um, why not put that as sensitive data then? Why not personality type? Uh, why not other things? Uh, and we see that the strain when, you know, in the GDPR, there's this really strained discussion about why photos are not sensitive data, uh, because you have protection against biometric information, 
uh, that's sensitive data. And, you know, race is sensitive data. So, you know, but from a photo, I, I can infer race. I can infer, you know, I, 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 can, I can get biometric information. Uh, so why wouldn't photos then be sensitive? And if everybody's photo, a photo of someone now suddenly becomes sensitive. Again, what isn't sensitive? So it's, it's, it, it creates the illusion of a simple solution, but then it's, it's almost impossible to administer in practice. How does a company now categorize data as sensitive or not? Uh, it all depends on you know how the data is combined, how it's used, and what inferences are made. Just doesn't work, unfortunately. Uh, I think ultimately the answer is the way that the AI Act is going about things is the right way. Focus on harm and risk. When will the you know will you know, what's the potential for harm or risk, and you know that's what we should use to regulate, and it shouldn't turn on the nature of the data. So if it's just someone's address, we'd say, oh, that, that's not sensitive. Well, it doesn't matter. If you're a stalking victim and someone is out to kill you, uh, your address should be protected uh, because there's a higher risk of harm in this situation. Uh, and it shouldn't turn on whether it's sensitive or not. Um, that to me is, is not the right approach. It, it, so I'm heartened that the AI Act uh, kind of jettisons this, this uh, and, and really just focuses on, let's look at where the risks are. Uh, and that's where we want to put the greatest protection. Uh, and if the law does that, I think that's the right track. Uh, so that's one way I would reform uh, the law and move away from, from these things. And then there's a whole thing about consent, um, enforcement, uh, and uh, a lot of other issues uh, where I think that the law uh, can, can improve. But we're in the early days of privacy law. I, I don't. I, I'd be shocked if somehow, you know, in in 2016, we figure it all out. And the GDPR is this the magic right answer. And it's just oh, as long as we just put the GDPR everywhere, we're going to solve the problem of privacy. And I think no, um, GDPR is an early effort, uh, a good effort uh, to address it. But uh, we we need. 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0, we're going to need a lot more iterations to get this right. So the, our message to the future is to focus more on risk and harm, but keep the rights as some form of basic sanity as well, because it's necessary for people to have some sort of control, but then it's more important to regulate um, the use of data and not detail what is sensitive, what is not sensitive. And I would also mention, I forgot to mention that if you want to, to the listeners, if you want a great source to everything Daniel J. Solav have written, you can visit his homepage, danielsolav.com. So that's, that's a great page. And I really encourage everyone to read at least um, some of the, your like most influential papers, I would say like the taxonomy of uh, privacy. And also if you're into GDPR, the limitations of privacy rights, those are like super interesting and also give you more understanding, especially coming from, if you recently joined the privacy community and started working only with GDPR and all the rights, I think these are great papers to get more in-depth understanding. So with that, I, I, I sincerely thank you for taking the time to be a guest to our podcast. And I am also looking forward to the coming book. 
and also the paper you mentioned will soon be published. I don't okay. I don't understand how you have the time to do all of this, but you probably well, write really fast. Oh, I'm a fast writer and I've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Uh, so to me, it seems slow. I, I, I charted out uh, this paper series that I've been writing uh, really back in, in 2013, which was actually a, a short piece I wrote called about privacy self-management. Um, but a lot of this comes out of that. Uh, and it's been, uh, these are things I've been thinking about for a very long time. Uh, and so I, I, I've been writing and thinking about privacy for 25 years. So, uh, it, but it's, it's not uh, only that you're thinking about, you can also articulate and write it in a fashion that we, the rest of us understands. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thanks for having me here. Tack till alla er som har lyssnat för att ni har lyssnat.